This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Of course, in the Nicene Creed, we uh, have this uh, expression, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This prayer also, though, talks about the other aspect of the Christian hope, and that is the hope of seeing God face to face. This is also attested to in scripture all the way back in the Old Testament when Moses asks God to see his face. We see it in many of the Psalms. Uh, and then, of course, the New Testament speaks of this hope as well. It's easy to see that these two aspects of the Christian hope exist. What's less obvious is how the two fit together. And one of the things that makes it difficult to see how they fit together is what my dear brother, St. Thomas Aquinas, had to say about the beatific vision. Because in the Summa Theologiae and in other places, he says that the vision of God is the ultimate end for which human beings were created. And that vision is an intellectual vision. It's something that we see with our minds, not with our physical eyes. And that vision will satisfy all of our longings. And we don't need our bodies for it. So the question is then, why do we need our bodies? How do these two aspects of the Christian hope fit together? And so that's the topic that I'd like to explore this evening. And just to anticipate where we're going, my suggestion is that we will need the resurrection of the body because the proper response to the vision of God is worship, praise, right? And if we're going to worship God in a fully human fashion, that is corporeally in bodies, and corporately in communion with other people, then we need to get our bodies back. So the talk will unfold in four parts. First, we'll begin by considering the threefold human vocation as it's described in the book of Genesis. I wanna to propose to you that in Genesis, we see three different reasons that God created human beings. From there, we'll move to the question of the beatific vision, both as it's uh, described in scripture and then as it's developed by St. Augustine and St. Thomas. I could have picked any number of people, but they seem like a good couple of guys to go with. Um, after that, we'll consider the question of why we need the resurrection. And it's not just for the reason that I suggested to you with respect to worship, but there are a number of other reasons that St. Thomas gives in a number of his writings for why we need the resurrection of the body. And then in the last part of the talk, I will talk, I will make the suggestion of how these two things fit together, seeing them again in through the lens of these three different ends that Genesis describes. Um, and then I'll have a little literary coda at the end with a quotation from Marilyn Robinson. Any of you ever have read the novel Gilead? Yes, it's awesome. <laughs> one has, at least one has, all right. The rest of you, that's your assignment after tonight. Um, okay. So there's a German Old Testament scholar of the late 19th and early 20th century by the name of Hermann Gunkel. And there's a saying that is ascribed to him, that the end resembles the beginning. Now, as far as I've been able to find, I haven't seen that exact phrase in any of his writings, but it's ascribed to him. Um, and the idea is there in his thought. Uh, and the idea is this. So Gunkel looked at the opening chapters of Genesis and the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. And if you do that, you'll see a lot of similarities. References to the tree of life, this river that gives life, lots of other details. I won't get into all of them. But uh, theologians since that time, and probably even before, have taken that little saying, the end is like the beginning, and they've thought to themselves, well, if we want to know what our end is like, it's probably useful to know what our beginning was like and what the purpose for which God created us is. 
right? And so I want to suggest to you that in the early chapters of Genesis, there are three different ends for which God creates us. One is kingship or dominion, so governing over the universe in partnership, of course, with God. The second one is rest. God created us eventually to enter into his own rest. And then finally, worship. So let's begin with kingship. Kingship is the most obvious of these three. It's right there in the very first thing that God says about creating human beings. The first five days of creation all follow the same general pattern. God speaks and things come to be. And even the beginning of the sixth day begins that way, right? Let the earth bring forth uh, beasts and that sort of thing. But then God deliberates. He says, let us make man in our image and likeness uh, and let them have dominion over the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea. I have the order wrong, but don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and then he creates human beings. And after he's created them, he repeats this as a command. He tells the first couple, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. There's the proper order. Uh, now this idea of kingship was actually a common one in the ancient Near East, not just among the Israelites, but in other Near Eastern cultures like Egypt or Mesopotamia, the Babylonians, that sort of thing. There was this close association between being made in the image of a God and ruling, right? And so some people have suggested that one of the interesting things that Genesis does is that it kind of democratizes this idea. Because in many of the ancient cultures like Egypt and Babylon, it was the king who was made in the image of God. But according to Genesis, it's all human beings. Now, if you fast forward to the New Testament, you will see this notion of kingship reflected particularly in texts that speak about the resurrection, about Christ's resurrection and about the hope for our own resurrection. So I'll give you just two examples. First, in the Acts of the Apostles at Pentecost, right? You know the story, the disciples in the upper room praying, the spirit comes down upon them uh, and they start speaking in tongues and people say they must be drunk. And Peter gives one of the best lines in all of scripture. We're not drunk, it's not even noon yet, right? <laughs> um, but after that, he preaches. He preaches about Jesus Christ, preaches about his victory over death, right? And in preaching about Christ's victory over death, and especially about his ascension, he quotes Psalm 110, this enthronement psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's the psalm that was used in, the, uh, in ancient Israel when the king was enthroned. And so there's this close connection between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and his kingship over the universe. Now, as is made clear throughout the New Testament, um, Jesus doesn't hog his power. He comes into his glory in order to draw us into it and in order to uh, give us a share in it. And you can see this in many places, but one place in particular is in the book of Revelation. Uh, so the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, as you probably know, begins with these seven messages to seven different churches. And in each of the seven messages, it ends with a kind of promise to the one who conquers. And I should have written down which church this is. <laughs> I don't remember which one it is, but in the message to one of the churches, uh, towards the end of Revelation chapter two, uh, Christ says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule, rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. 
So there he alludes to Psalm 2. This is another psalm that's associated with the Davidic king. And he promises that it will be applied to those who conquer by his grace. Right? So God creates human beings to rule over the universe, and he doesn't take it back. <laughs> Even after the fall, he promises that through Christ's victory over death, we are invited into that kingship. All right, the second end for which God creates us in Genesis is to invite us into his rest. Now, this is not explicitly stated in Genesis, but it's there implicitly, and you can see it uh, as you look through the rest of scripture. Many people think that the climax of the first creation account is the creation of human beings, right? They're the climax, they're the pinnacle of creation. Um, yes and no. <laughs> yes, they are the pinnacle of earthly creation, of course. Uh, there is a distinction on the sixth day, right? As I mentioned earlier, God deliberates and he says, let's make human beings in our image and likeness. So there's something that distinguishes human beings from the rest of the creatures that he makes on those first six days. But the climax of that first creation account actually is found at the beginning of chapter two with the seventh day when God takes up his rest. And there are a number of ways that the author of this passage indicates that this is the climax. First, he says not once, but three times that this is the seventh day. Also, he emphasizes that God rests on this day, that God hallows the day, so he consecrates it, he sets it apart for a particular purpose. And unlike the first six days, which all end with the narrator saying there was evening and there was morning, there's no reference to evening and morning, suggesting that this is the climax. And as we'll see later, this is something that St. Augustine takes uh, to see the Sabbath as an image for eternity, for what we hope for. So Genesis 2 doesn't explicitly invite human beings into God's rest, but the rest of scripture makes it obvious that this is what God intended, particularly if you consider the commandment uh, regarding the Sabbath, which appears twice in the Pentateuch in two different versions of it. This commandment, of course, was crucial for ancient Israelites. It continues to be so for observant Jews to this day. And there are two different versions in the Old Testament. So first in Exodus 19 with the original giving of the Ten Commandments, this version of the commandment highlights uh, this participation in God's rest at the end of creation. All right, so how God enjoys rest. And then the version that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 5, interestingly, highlights the Israelites' liberation from slavery. You would think it would be the opposite since in Exodus they had just gotten out, but no, for some reason the authors wait until Deuteronomy to emphasize this liberation. But either way, the Sabbath is clearly very important for the ancient Israelites. And we could spend all night seeing how this image of rest appears over and over again in the Old Testament. I won't bore you with that because we don't have all night, but it's a really crucial image. Uh, and it appears again uh, in one place in Psalm 95, this is one of the Psalms that religious pray almost every morning, or they can in theory anyway, as the opening of the divine office. It's the one that begins, come let us sing to the Lord and shout with joy to the rock who saves us. And it goes on from there and it ends with this warning, um, they shall not enter into my rest. And the letter to the Hebrews takes up this Psalm and combines it with the notion of, this, of God's rest in Genesis and applies it to the Christian hope, saying that the Christian hope is ultimately to enter into God's rest, right? And so the author of Hebrews exhorts his audience to persevere, not to give up, because in the end, it will be worth it with this rest. All right, the third 
purpose for which God creates human beings in these opening chapters of Genesis, I would say, is to worship, right? And one of the keys, or one of the hints at this, is a number that I think many people misinterpret, <laughs> the number seven, right? Obviously, the number seven is crucial for the creation account. It's not just the seven days, but in Hebrew, the very first sentence of Genesis is seven words, and the second one, if I'm not mistaken, is about 14 words. Lots of the important words in that opening account appear seven times. So why does that matter? How many of you have heard somebody say, seven is the number of perfection, completion, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> I don't think in Genesis 1, though, that's the primary thing. Um, why else might the number seven be significant? Well, it appears in a couple of very interesting contexts. The first, well, and two particular contexts, both of which have to do with worship. The first is the description of the instructions for building the tabernacle and then the actual construction of the tabernacle in Exodus, and we all know the tabernacle is not the box that you see in the church, right? It's this enormous portable worship space that the Israelites used, right? So in Exodus, I'm not gonna pretend like I remember the chapter 29, in, the, in chapters 25 to 31, yeah. Chapter, so chapters 25 to 40 of the book of Exodus are the description of first the instructions for building the tabernacle and then the actual construction of the tabernacle. Yeah, and so in chapters 25 to 31, God gives Moses the instructions, and there are seven instructions. And then you have the golden calf incident and all the follow from that. And then chapters 35 to 40 describe the building of the tabernacle. And once again, you have this refrain that occurs seven, time, that seven times that Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him. So the number seven is closely associated with the tabernacle. Some people have suggested that that means that the tabernacle is actually the real culmination of creation, that creation is ultimately ordered to sacrificial worship for God. There's another interesting place where the number seven features prominently, and that is in the first book of Kings, when uh, Solomon first builds and then dedicates the temple. And according to first Kings, it takes Solomon seven years to, to build the temple. Then he dedicates it in a on a festival that takes place during the seventh month. And the festival lasts seven days. Anybody care to guess how many petitions there are in his prayer dedicating the temple? Seven, seven. yeah, it's not rocket science, right? Seven, over and over and over again, right? So all these sevens associated first with the tabernacle and then with the temple suggest that the purpose of creation is for worship. And this actually connects back to this notion of rest, right? Because the notion of rest, it's not like God says, oh man, creating a universe, that wears you out, right? Well, you take a rest now, right? No, God doesn't get tired, right? In the ancient Near Eastern context, when a God rested, it meant that the God took up his residence in the temple, right? And so when God rests on the seventh day, he's taking up his residence in the temple of creation, if we move forward into the second uh, creation account in Genesis in chapters two and three, there's lots of imagery there as well that would evoke the temple. So the temple itself was and the tabernacle as well was decorated in ways that would evoke Eden, right? With lots of fruit imagery, palm trees, gold, onyx, that sort of thing. You find those sorts of things in Eden, gold, onyx, the materials that would be used for the temple, for the priest's vestments, that sort of thing. 
And then when God creates Adam in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that he put him in the garden to till it and to keep it. And you're thinking to yourself, so what? It's a garden. That's what you do, right? <laughs> um, well, the particular Hebrew comb combination of those two Hebrew ver verbs, to, kill, to till and to keep, appears in a number of other places in the Old Testament, and they're used to describe what the priests did in the sanctuary, in the temple. So the third purpose is worship. And we can see this all over the book of Revelation. Right? The book of Revelation is constantly talking about priests, you have incense, you've got all sorts of images of worship. Right? And it culminates um, towards the end with this beautiful reading that is, I'm gonna mangle. It's for uh, Sunday Compline after the second Vespers of Sunday. It's from Revelation 21, where it says, they shall see the Lord face to face and bear his name on their foreheads. The night shall be no more, they shall need nor light from lamps of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they shall reign forever. Wow, I actually did it. Um, so the bearing the name on the forehead, that's an allusion to one of the things that the ancient Israelite priest would wear when he served in the temple. Right? There was this thing, he wore this turban-like thing, and there was like a little metal plate that had the name of the Lord on it. Right? So the book of Revelation ends with worship all over the place. Now, in that little line that I just recited for you, there is an indication of the other aspect of the Christian hope that I mentioned at the beginning, right? That's this desire to see God face to face. It says, they shall see the Lord face to face and wear his name on their foreheads. So this brings us to the second part of the talk tonight, and that is the vision of God. As I mentioned earlier, there are lots of references to this hope throughout scripture, uh, but it's worth lingering uh, over the book of Revelation and the context in which this hope is expressed. Because the last couple of chapters of Revelation describe a marriage feast, right? It's, there's this connection between seeing God and love, right? The fulfillment of our desire to be loved and to love, right? And anybody who has been in love knows that sometimes all you need to do is gaze on your beloved and that's enough, that will satisfy you. Now, in the Old Testament, it's interesting. There is, um, there's some ambiguity about the notion of seeing God. On the one hand, you have texts that seem to suggest that if someone sees God in this life, it'll destroy them. It'll kill them, literally, right? Hagar sees God, and she's amazed that she didn't keel over. Uh, there are a number of other places where the writer is surprised that people saw God, and they went on living. On the other hand, there is this repeated expression of this deep desire to see God. As early as Moses, right? In shortly around the time of the golden calf incident, Moses asked the Lord, let me see your face. And he says, no, I'm gonna show you my back. Whatever that means, <laughs> it's a weird, mysterious, cryptic thing. But you have this desire expressed over and over again. And one of my favorite examples of this appears in Psalm 27. So the Psalm begins uh, with a Psalmist saying, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For the ancient Israelites, the temple was about as close as you could get to seeing God because that was where he dwelt. And so to be there was to be, uh, be in his presence, right? But the Psalm says twice more, uh, it, twice more it expresses this desire to see God. So a few verses later, it says, you have said, seek my face. That's God speaking to the psalmist. 
And the psalmist replies, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. And then the psalm ends with this expression of confidence that someday this hope will be fulfilled. He says, I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. The New Testament, much like the Old Testament, picks up on this hope and expresses it in a variety of ways. One of the most famous is in the Beatitudes, in Matthew's version of the Beatitudes. One of the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right? And the, the Beatitudes, in the Beatitudes in Matthew, Jesus is describing what it will mean to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And one very important aspect of that is seeing God face to face. St. Paul also speaks of this hope. In the first letters to the Corinthians, in this famous chapter that I'm sure all of you have heard at a wedding at some point, it's overdone. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's a good chapter, but it's just overdone. Uh, at the end of that chapter, though, Paul says, For now we see through a mirror in dim images. We don't see God clearly in this life. We get glimpses uh, in different ways in the Blessed Sacrament and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, But then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, then we will know just as we are known. Uh, Just one last example. There are many others I could point to. There's a verse in the first letter of John that is near and dear to Dominicans, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And this verse is particularly near and dear to Dominicans because it plays a crucial part in St. Thomas's theology. In fact, one of the friars of our province has suggested, I forget if it's Archbishop Tenoya or Father Cesario, but one of them suggested that you could see the Summa as an extended interpretation of that verse from 1 John chapter three. Um, And I think he's right. (laughs) Um, This hope, of course, was developed throughout the church's history. You could speak, I could speak of any number of figures, but as I said at the beginning, I wanna focus just on Augustine and on St. Thomas. So St. Augustine wrote about this hope for the vision of God in numerous places. Uh, I'd like to focus primarily on a letter that he wrote to a woman called Paulina. And the later interpreters have given this letter the name, the book of the vision of God. And there, Augustine says a number of things. First, he says that the vision of God will be an intellectual vision. It's not something that we see with our physical eyes, but it's something that we see, just like we can see a concept. Oh, I see how that works. We'll see God with our minds. Uh, And if you think back to that verse from 1 Corinthians 13, this is actually very fitting with what scripture says, because scripture speaks about seeing God face to face, but then it talks about knowing God. So this vision that scripture speaks of is more like a knowledge. Now, in writing to this woman, Paulina, he describes uh, the vision of God as this intellectual thing. He says, but to look upon those things which I said are beheld by the mind, namely that you are living, that you wish to see God, that you seek this. To see all these things, I repeat, you do not use your bodily eyes, nor do you perceive or look for any part of space through which your, your gaze may travel in order to attain to the sight of these things. So again, it's not something you see with your eyes, it's an intellectual vision. 
And unsurprisingly, he also appeals to that beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And so for Augustine, as for many people in the tradition, it's this intellectual vision of the mind and the heart. You see the same thing in Aquinas. He appeals to 1 John chapter 3, this verse that I just read, as well as the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, and numerous other texts. But as is his tendency, he also joins the scriptural testimony with his own philosophical analysis. And so in asking what the, the proper, the ultimate end for human beings is, he takes and he develops Aristotle's discussion of happiness, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And so he rules out a number of things that can't be our ultimate end. Wealth, honor, fame, power, bodily goods, pleasure, or any other good of the soul. None of these things can satisfy us ultimately. Wealth, because you don't have wealth for its own sake, but for other things. Honor and fame, because it can be taken away from you. It depends on somebody else. Power, also because it's for the sake of other things, and so on. And so he comes to the conclusion that, yes, our ultimate end is this intellectual vision that we see mentioned in scripture that Augustine speaks of. It's a desire to see God face to face. And by this, Thomas means being God uniting his essence directly to our intellect. And as is commonly known, Thomas says that will satisfy our every desire. And so that leads to the problem. Why do we need our bodies back? Right? If we'll be completely satisfied just seeing God with our intellects, then our bodies seem kind of superfluous. Now, as you all are well known, well aware, right, excuse me, uh, St. Thomas was pretty smart <laughs> and he read scripture. And so he knew that the resurrection was important as well. So I'd like to go through four reasons that Thomas offers uh, for why we need the resurrection. I don't, I'm not suggesting that they're exhaustive, but I think they're interesting ones that he offers. Two of them are based on scripture and two of them are based on his own philosophical anthropology. So biblical reason number one, Thomas appeals to the notion of the defeat of death, right? Scripture speaks, the New Testament especially speaks of Christ conquering death by his death and resurrection, right? And so St. Thomas says, Christ redeems us not only from sin, but from the effects of sin. And the worst effect of sin is spiritual death, which subsequently leads to the the cessation of our biological life, natural death. And there are texts in both the Old and New Testament that speak of this victory over death. Now, let me ask you this. If our bodies are just lying in the grave, rotting away, becoming warm food, has Christ conquered death for us yet? (laughs) No. I'm not saying that he hasn't conquered death, period. Has it been applied to us yet, though? No. I'm sure you all have seen one of those cartoons where the cat dies, right? And what happens? The little ghost floats off with the wings, right? (laughs) Right. Um, sadly, that's what a lot of people think happens. And they think, yeah, that's all you need, right? To float off to heaven. But if our bodies are rotting in the graves, they're just worm food, death hasn't been conquered. Because death, by definition, is the separation of the body from the soul, right? And so in order for Christ to really conquer death, (laughs) you need the resurrection, not just Christ's own resurrection, but our own resurrections as well. The second reason Aquinas gives is that Christ is the pattern of our redemption. Christ, uh, Thomas was a great reader of scripture and he learned a lot from St. Paul. One of the things being that Christ's resurrection wasn't just a nice little reward for going to the cross, 
but it's actually the pattern that we're all supposed to be conformed to. Right? And so I could give you any number of texts. So I'll just read a couple of different ones from Paul to which Aquinas appeals. So in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And many people stop right there and they say, So that's where we're floating off to. <laughs> but that's not where Paul stops. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christ is going to return and he's going to transform our bodies and make them glorious like his own. In Paul's earliest letter, the first letter to the Thessalonians, when he's encouraging um, or comforting rather the Thessalonians over the loss of their loved ones, he says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then in Romans chapter 8, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who dwells in you. There are plenty more texts in Paul. I don't need to belabor the point. But over and over again, Paul says that Christ's resurrection is the pattern for our own hope. And not just Paul, other texts in the New Testament as well. Okay, Aquinas also gives two anthropological reasons for the resurrection. Reason number one, hylomorphism. Isn't that a fun word? <laughs> we're body, soul, composites, we're a unity. We're not, a soul is not a human being. A corpse is not a human being, right? So the soul, as I'm sure you all have learned here from your philosophy professors, is the form of the body. And so one of the most important things it does is to make a body a body. Without a soul, it's not a body anymore. It's a corpse, right? That's its essential function. And so if it's not doing that, it's not fulfilling its essential function. Even as it's gazing in awe at God, at his essence, it's still lacking something that's proper to its nature, right? And so in a sense, the separation of the body and the soul is unnatural because they're meant to be wedded together, right? And so St. Thomas says, for that reason, we need the resurrection, Right? It's necessary for complete human happiness. Uh, and St. Thomas makes the interesting point that without the resurrection, it wouldn't be human beings that Christ saves. It's weird to think about, but the saints in heaven aren't full human beings. They're just souls, <laughs> very happy souls. And I hope to be one of those souls someday, but they're incomplete still. Incidentally, this is why people find corpses and ghosts creepy. Corpses and ghosts creepy, right? Because they're unnatural, right? They're ugh. like, no, you want them united, and one or the other is just ugh, creepy. Um, there's a beautiful expression of this in the Paradiso. Dante, in the 14th canto of the Paradiso, has the saints cry out. Um, they say, "When our flesh, made glorious at the judgment seat, dresses us once again, then shall our persons become more pleasing." in being more complete. So the resurrection is gonna make even the saints in heaven more perfect because they'll be what God created them to be. The second anthropological reason that Aquinas gives for the resurrection, this is my favorite one actually, and it's an interesting one that you find scattered throughout his writings. You have to look for it. Uh, but it's not just that we are body soul composites, but human beings are social animals. We're meant for one another, we're meant to live in communion. Right. And so St. Thomas says that 
uh, not only are we social animals, but our beatitude, our happiness, has to have a social dimension as well. So, for example, in his commentary on the Psalms, he says, third, heaven is derived also out of human society. For a human creature is unable to enjoy anything perfectly. What can, one can do so only as he has friends sharing his own good fortune. We need friends to enjoy <laughs> the delights of heaven. In his commentary on Hebrews, he puts it another way, but it's, a very, it's the same point. He says, or it, namely the joy of the resurrection, can refer to the clothing of the body, which will not be given generally until after the general resurrection, although some perhaps already have it out of a special privilege. Of course, he's thinking about Our Lady, right, who was assumed into heaven, um, possibly Elijah, some other odd things in the Old Testament. Uh, and he continues, therefore, they are not consummated without us, but are perfected with a double stole, so that as the gloss says, in the common joy of all, the joy of each individual will become greater. Hence, God provides for us in this matter. And therefore he says, since God has foreseen something better for us, behold, so sorry, the he here is the author of Hebrews. Since God has foreseen something better for us, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. And then here's Thomas's commentary on that. He says, for a man rejoices more with many rejoicing. Again, we need other people. I mean, we know this intuitively, right? Like when you're excited about something, you need something to share it with, someone to share it with, right? Um, and once again, there's a beautiful expression of this in that same canto from the Paradiso. So Dante, again, in the same section has the souls say, so it says, and Amen cried the souls of either chain with such prompt zeal as to make evident how much they yearned to wear their flesh again. So Dante picture, pictures saints seeing the beatific vision and longing to get their bodies back. All right. So how much they yearned to wear their flesh again, perhaps less for themselves than for the love of mothers, fathers, and those each soul held dear before it became an eternal flame above. In other words, he seems to suggest that the resurrection is gonna be this spectacular reunion with friends and family that you can't have in the same way when you're a ghost, effectively, right? A happy ghost, but a ghost. <laughs> okay, fourth and final part of the talk. So how do these things fit together? I wanna to return to the three ends that I suggested to you that can be found in opening chapters of Genesis, so kingship, rest, and worship, but I'm going to take them in a different order. We're going to go in the order of worship, kingship, and rest. Um, have any of you read C.S. Lewis's Reflections on the Psalms or heard of it? Uh, bits, bits and pieces. He has a wonderful little chapter in there uh, that's a meditation on the nature of praise, and he asks, why is the psalmist constantly saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord? Um, and Lewis asks, so what, is like God a, a in, insecure tyrant who needs sycophants just assuaging his ego? And he says, no, not at all. It's not that God needs praise, it's that praise is the proper response to something amazing. And, and so he says, as he's meditating on this, he says, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless sometimes even if shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. 
think of it, you're at a basketball game or you're at a concert, you're anything, something like that. You can't help it. You'll get caught up into it. That's part of enjoying the experience, right? Um, and so we worship God, not because he needs it, but because we do and because it's the proper response to seeing God. It's by actually worshiping God that God comes to dwell within us, or that's the medium through which he comes to dwell in us. Um, one of my favorite prefaces in the Roman Missal, the preface is you know, part of the Eucharistic prayer before the actual, uh, well, shortly before, that's the part that leads into the Eucharistic prayer. And in common preface four, there's an exciting name for a prayer for you. Uh, part of what it says is this, for although you have no need of our praise, yet our thanksgiving is itself your gift. Since our praises add nothing to your greatness, but profit us for salvation. Praising God is for our, for our own good. It's not for God's. And it's how he draws us to himself and heals us. Um, back to Lewis, he points out again that praise is kind of, it's not something superfluous. It's not just that we do it spontaneously. It's that the event, you're not really fully engaged in the experience if you don't enter into it. All right, so he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Now, in case you didn't pick up on it yet, I love C.S. Lewis. <laughs> but I also recognize that he's not the most authoritative person in the history of the church. And so I was delighted when I was working on this a few years back to find that in one of St. Augustine's sermons, he says something similar and he applies it specifically to the resurrection. So sermon 362, it's his famous uh, Amen, Alleluia sermon. Um, we can talk about why it's called that afterwards if you want. But Augustine has this to say, he says, and so, because we shall see the truth without any distaste and with perpetual delight and gaze upon it with the, uh, with the most evident certainty, we shall be fired with love of this truth and cling to it with a sweet and chaste embrace. A non-bodily one, of course. He's thinking of truth, of course, in the abstract, not of Jesus Christ's truth, but he's saying this vision will be a non-bodily one. But nevertheless, he's saying we're going to embrace it. And he says, and so we will praise him with the same kind of voice and say, Alleluia. And this is beautiful the way he describes it. All the citizens of that city, you see, will be urging each other to equal heights of praise with the most ardent charity toward one another and toward God. And so they will be saying, Alleluia, because they will be saying, Amen. Right? And in a nutshell, what he means, Amen, it's true. Christ has conquered death. He's conquered it for us. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All right. The second end, which is the first one that I started with in Genesis was kingship, right? So what about kingship? Well, if you read the book of Revelation closely, kingship and priesthood go hand in hand. Every time the visionary says something about priesthood, like right next to it, there's something about kingship. Right, even the, the verse that I uh, recited for you, right? They shall see the Lord face to face and bear his name on their foreheads. The night shall be no more, etc. And they shall reign. Now, Augustine in the city of God asks, what are we going to be doing with our bodies? <laughs> what are we going to have them for? 
right? And Augustine suggests that we will know God in the body, but not necessarily through the body. What does he mean? So he says, perhaps God will be known to us invisible to us in the sense that he will be spiritually perceived by each one of us in each one of us, perceived in one another, perceived by each in himself. In other words, we're going to be transparent to one another. Maybe translucent would be a better way of saying it, because it's not like we're going to be just um, swallowed up, but God will shine in and through us, right? And he says, he will be seen in the new heaven and the new earth, in the whole creation as it then will be. He will be seen in every body by means of bodies, wherever the eyes of the spiritual body are directed with their penetrating gaze. So here's a development from that sermon where earlier he said it would just be this intellectual thing. Here now he suggests that maybe even in some mysterious ways, way with our resurrected bodies, we'll see God in and through the bodies. And he appeals to 1 Corinthians 15, 28, where Paul says, God will be all in all. We'll see God in all things. Um, it's possible that one possible way of thinking about this is if you think about some of the mystics, think of St. Catherine of Siena, for example. St. Catherine spent much of her earlier life locked up in her cell, locked in herself, in her cell, uh, just in communion with God. But after that, after a time, God sent her out on a mission. And so she was doing all sorts of things, telling the Pope to go back to Rome, negotiating peace, all these sorts of things. And yet at the same time, she was constantly in communion with God. Um, another thing we're thinking about in this respect is to go back to Aquinas, one of the things that he says about what the resurrected body will look like. So Aquinas develops this tradition about what the characteristics of the resurrected body will be. And he suggests the body will have subtlety, agility, impassibility, and clarity. Right now, if we have these four characteristics in our bodies, presumably we're going to be doing something with them, right? Right. And so I would suggest that perhaps, so building on both St. Thomas and Augustine, perhaps in the new heavens and the new earth, which Revelation describes, every activity of our body will in some way be an act of worship. Um, it's kind of a, a totally inadequate analogy, but one that I like anyway. Have any of you seen the classic film, Chariots of Fire. Anyone? Yeah. Um, so it's a story about an early 20th century English track team, right, in the Olympics. And one of the character, one of the, it's not a character, he actually, this guy actually existed. <laughs> one of the main, um, I guess he's a character though, because it's a movie, right? Uh, Eric Liddell is this Scottish runner uh, who was also a devout Christian. And he says uh, at one point in the film, actually twice in the film, I think, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Right? And perhaps when we get our bodies back in everything that we do, we'll feel God's pleasure in us. All right, the third end, according to Genesis, rest, entering into God's Sabbath, rest. And this is a major theme in St. Augustine. So in that sermon that I uh, quoted from earlier, he says, it will be a perpetual Sabbath which is celebrated by the Jews in a temporal sense, but is understood by us to be eternal. There will be, an express, there will be inexpressible peace and quiet, quite impossible to describe. Some people find the notion of rest not particularly appealing because it's like, what, we're just going to be lounging around doing nothing? <laughs> you shouldn't think of it in that way. You should think of it in terms of peace 
joy still is a thing that we so rarely have in this life. Now, in Book 22 of The City of God, Augustine talks about three different characteristics of what that rest will look like. So first, he says it will be characterized by freedom, by genuine freedom. So he says, the will will be freed from all evil and filled with all good, enjoying unfailingly the, the delight of eternal joys, forgetting all offenses, forgetting all punishments. All right, second aspect of that rest is that we'll have a proper understanding of our past. All right, so it's not that we'll completely forget the awful things that we've done or that others have done to us, but that we'll have the proper perspective on them. He says, the saints will have no sensible recollection of past evils, right? In this life, when we think back to the stupid or evil things that we've done, you get a pit in your stomach, right? Or you just, you feel awful. And he says, no, you won't have that feeling. He says, theirs will be the second kind of forgetfulness by which they will be set free from them all, that is from these feelings, and they will be completely erased from their feelings. So these evils, the, the, the evil feeling will be erased, even as we remember um, what we've done. Now, why? Why would we want to remember our sins? Augustine says, because remembering our sins will contribute to our praise of God. He says, if the saints were to lose the knowledge of their past misery, how will they, as the psalm says, sing the mercies of the Lord for all eternity? Nothing will give more joy to that city than this song to the glory of the grace of Christ by whose blood we have been set free. So even the awful things of this life will be transformed into a glorious, delightful thing. And Augustine ends the city of God with this beautiful description of what it will look like. He says, the important thing is that the age to come will be our Sabbath, whose end will not be an evening, but the Lord's day, an eighth day, as it were, which is to last forever, a day consecrated by the resurrection of Christ, foreshadowing the eternal rest, not only of the spirit, but of the body also. There we shall be still and see, we shall see and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. Behold what will be in the end without end. For what is our end but to reach that kingdom which has no end? It's a beautiful passage, perfectly fine place to end, but I'm not going to end there because I do want to add just a little liter literary coda from this novel that I mentioned, Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead. It's a beautiful book if you haven't read it. Um, just to give you a little context, uh, it's told from the perspective of a man named John Ames, who's a congregationalist pastor living in Iowa, who's married very late in life, I think probably in his 60s or so, and he discovers that he has a terminal illness. And so he's writing what he wants to leave to his son. He has a five-year-old son or so whom he's not going to be able to see uh, grow up. And among the things that he says to his son is this, and I, I still remember the first time I read the passage, it just struck me as absolutely beautiful and a nice compliment to what St. Augustine says. So Ames says, I can't believe that when we have all been changed and put on incorruptibility, we will forget our fantastic condition of mortality and impermanence. The great bright dream of procreating and perishing that meant the whole world to us. In eternity, 
This world will be Troy, I believe, and all that has passed here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets, because I don't imagine any reality putting this one in the shade entirely, and I think piety forbids me to try. So what will the life of the world to come look like? We will be delighting in God's presence, delighting in the vision of him, and praising him for all the wonderful things he has done for us.